All right, all right. You are listening to the Sober Awakenings Podcast, a show designed to aid you in the journey of recovery and encourage you to embrace living in states of enlightenment and presence. The Sakina Method of Recovery is a 12-step program from an Islamic point of view. Whether you are struggling in the midst of pain or on the path of recovery, these sober awakening conversations and interviews are here to be a reminder and record of the power of permanent transformation. I am so excited to announce the guest of this next episode of Sober Awakenings. The intention for having this guest on started actually probably at the beginning of this year. I met this brother about a year and a half ago, right at the onset of the pandemic. He, along with a mutual friend of ours, had invited a scholar, Sheikh Qasim Hatem, from the Seattle area to come down to OSHU to give a lecture to the university students. Our Muslim Community Center Portland sponsored as well part of the trip and had Sheikh Qasim speak uh, at MCCP as well as uh, other locations here in the Portland area and it was a very wonderful trip and through it I was able to meet this dear beautiful soul brother Omar Saeed. There is so much I can say about brother Omar that I won't even try to get into it. He has been a blessing to our Portland community, a light in a time of darkness. And as Hafiz al-Quran, I have actually been studying, uh, although very briefly, uh, with this dear brother, uh, working on my Arabic, Quranic recitation, Tajweed, um, Brother Omar led our Tarawees at the Muslim Community Center of Portland this past year during Ramadan, which was such a time of rejuvenation and openings for our community. We are forever indebted to him for that. Alhamdulillah, we have recently been edging towards the reopening or at least an adjustment to a new sense of normality as our community has come to understand new infrastructures, engaging online, how to have hybrid conversations in semi-online and public spaces, as well as how to appropriately balance the interpersonal relationships again despite all of the legal restrictions that are upon us and that we also maintain dear for the beneficial 
health of our community. Last month, some of us in the community got together and actually put on a mental wellness event uh, entitled My Family, My Faith, and Me, which I'll actually link in the show notes for this episode. But Brother Omar, mashallah, he took the initiative from that event and facilitated a beautiful conversation this past weekend. You may remember Brother Ramin Rahatsad from our very first episode. Omar invited him to navigate this conversation amongst the brothers. And the three of us actually spent a wonderful time together uh, this past weekend. Omar and I nearly spent the entire day together yesterday, and after the event, we sat down and finally reaped the benefits of the rewards of our intentions from earlier in the year as we were able to dust off some of my old recording equipment and engage in our first in-person interview for the Sober Awakenings podcast. It is my pleasure to introduce you to our guest today. So without further ado, here is Soper Awakenings, episode four. All right, all right. Welcome. I've got Sidi Omar Saeed here with us today. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam, brother Tim. Good to have you here. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. This is actually the first recording we've actually gotten to do in person, I think, since our pilot episode so yeah alhamdulillah this is good i'm proud to finally be in a place where we can move past some of these restrictions that pandemics put upon us absolutely it's been a challenging year brother omar is a doctor uh you just got your medical degree earlier this year yes i got my dental degree yes my dmd alhamdulillah so we'll talk some maybe about that but um to start off with you know today we had a it was a mindfulness right conversation with some of the brothers in our community um and we'd had uh brother ramin hatsad who came and spoke earlier uh to us in the community and uh our listeners will inshallah remember Brother Ramin from our first podcast episode, and he was sharing today about the Hadith Jibreel and how we can use some of the prophetic wisdom from that in conversations about wellness. So um, just to start our conversation, um, Brother, would you just share maybe a little bit about uh, the hadith and some of the wisdom that uh, Brother Ramin shared, and obviously add your two cents in as well. Sure, sure. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So, yeah, alhamdulillah, we're very fortunate today, um, based on last week's conversation that we had on Zoom uh, on mental health awareness and just wellness in general, and especially with today being the anniversary of 9 11. Um, I thought this was an opportune. 
a day for us to have this conversation and have this event and program with Brother Ramin. Um, the hadith of the Prophet is one in which a man comes and he comes to the Prophet in a city where there's 2,000 people that live there and everybody that's coming is kind of known. Everybody who lives in the city is known to each other. And this man comes who's completely wearing white clothes and he, there's no signs of travel on him. And uh, in that time, there's no airplanes, there's no cars. But even if you go on a six-hour journey in a car, you're going to get a little sweaty. So you're going to get a little bit of marking of your clothes. Something will look, your hair will look a little straggly. So this man comes looking just pristine, and nobody knows who he is. So if nobody knows who he is in a 2,000-person city, then you assume he's a traveler. But then if he's a traveler, why are his clothes so clean? If he's just come through the desert. So he comes and he asks the Prophet three questions and he asks him about what is Islam, what is Iman, and what is Ihsan. Right? And the Prophet answers, and when he answers, this, this person says, Sadaq, you have spoken the truth. And the companions were kind of shocked that who is this person that he's telling the Prophet that you've spoken the truth? Like who is he to correct the Prophet or confirm what he's saying? That uh, And that, of course, was the angel Jibreel, alayhi salam, and he was sent in the form of a human being. And he asked him, what is Islam? And the Prophet, he narrated, um, he narrated something close to the five pillars, essentially the shahada, the testimony, the uh, prayer, the zakat, and the fasting of month Ramadan, and then the pilgrimage once a year. And then the second dimension that he asked him about was, what is Iman? And Iman is a dimension of the mind. And he mentioned the six pillars of faith, the belief belief in the last day, the belief in divine destiny, the prophets, the angels, the books, the messengers. And then he asked him, what is Ihsan? And he said, Ihsan is to worship Allah as if you can see him. And if you can't see him, at least knowing that he sees you. So I think the conversation that we were having, and that's kind of how we introduced the conversation, is the three dimensions of a human being. And there is the physical dimension. And I like to think about this when we pray, for example, when we complete our salah, we do an outer mode of worship where we have to put our hands a certain way. We have to put our feet a certain way. We have to bow down, physically bow down. And then mentally, we're also supposed to put our mind in a certain place, right? A person is supposed to focus his mind and his thoughts on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is why we say Allahu Akbar so many times in the prayer, or one of the reasons I should say. So we say Allahu Akbar, which means Allah is greater. God is greater. So it's not... Technically, God is greatest. It's not, that's not the translation. It's God is greater. Why do we say God is greater? It's when we say Allahu Akbar. We say God is greater than the dinner I'm thinking about right now. God is greater than the event I have tomorrow. God is greater than the work meeting I have in 20 minutes. And then we say God is greater. And then, you know, we, our mind wanders a little bit after a few seconds. And then we go to the next position and we again repeat Allahu Akbar. God is greater. Because now... I stopped thinking about this morning's breakfast, but now I'm thinking about lunch. <laughs> or I'm thinking about what outfit I'm wearing. Or I'm thinking about, you know, the X number of things I have to do in the future or some call that I forgot to make. And then we say Allahu Akbar again and again and again, so many times in the prayer to remind ourselves every single time that God is greater than every single thing that we can think of. And our mind is constantly wandering. And then we have the spiritual dimension in the state of prayer that we're always trying to be reaching. And this is a state of ihsan, the state of spiritual excellency. So these are the three dimensions of a human being. There is the body, the outer physical dimension, and this is the quality of Islam. 
Number two is the mental dimension. Um, and this is the quality of Iman, what a person believes in their mind. And then there's the spiritual dimension, the Ruh, and this is the quality of Ihsan, of spiritual excellency. And this is where a person, he becomes Khalifatullahi fil ard. He becomes a true representative and vicegerent of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the face of this earth. What does this mean? It means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has 99 qualities and a person, he tries to be a representative of each of those qualities and a reflection of the light of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala here on this earth. And what is the greatest of these 99 qualities? It is the quality of mercy. And a person becomes a person of mercy and of divine light. And this is something that, like we were discussing this morning, this is like, so this is something that non-Muslims can recognize even. People who are not spiritual or religious in any sense, they can recognize the quality of divine light emanating from this person's heart. Um, there is a story about Habib Umar, um, and he was walking with our teacher, Sheikh Qasim, in the UK. And he said that there are so many times that people would just stop and be like, who is this person? And they would become Muslim just by looking at him, just by looking at people of great spirituality. There is a story about uh, Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayya, a uh, teacher, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, that uh, once he was walking through the airport and there was a soccer team. <laughs> Uh, they were traveling to their game, one of those big soccer teams, and they saw Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayya, and they just said, Sheikh, please give us advice, give us advice. You know, they're not even Muslim, but they recognize a deep, this is a human being's deep spiritual nature, that even people who are not necessarily religious or belief in anything, when they undergo extreme stress, and sometimes we see this as, as a doctor, you see this in people who are undergoing traumatic events, they turn to God. And that's just human nature, the fitrah, um, that they understand that there is a higher power. And I think this is true of every human being, um, that it's inside of them, this understanding that there's something more. And it comes in the Quran, that verily only in the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala do the hearts find rest. Right, And this is that spiritual dimension and a person who doesn't complete this or never investigates a spiritual dimension, no matter what he has in this world, he could have the biggest mansions, he could have the most fame in the world, he could have so much money. This person will always find something missing in their hearts, right? And we see that's true of the biggest celebrities in the world. How many of them have drug overdoses? I was just reading a, a book this week called Bedlam. Um, and it was basically, this book was, um, it, it was written by a psychiatrist on essentially the mental health crisis in America. And uh, one of the interesting things was um, the highest rate of drug usage, the highest rate of alcohol abuse, and all of these things are actually in the richest zip codes in the United States, right? Where you think, oh, well, these people should be theoretically the happiest. Um, and one of the interesting things also is you look at these happiness indexes that people measure um, in various surveys all over the globe. Really, they just met, me, measure material happiness. And the belief is, if you materially, if you have health insurance and guaranteed benefits and you don't have student loans, you should be the happiest country in the world. That's not the reality. And in many of those countries, there's still a high rate of suicide, despite the surveys claiming that they're the highest, the happiest countries in the world. Why? Because there's something missing in their hearts. And you'll find that that's true of anybody, of any situation, regardless of how rich, famous, educated, whatever adjective, superlative you want to put in front of them, every single person needs to have a connection to their creator. Every person needs to have a purpose. And without that, we'll all be lost. Wow, there's so much in what you were just saying that we could touch more upon. Um, 
actually, you know, the last thing you're talking there about in terms of happiness, you know, this is something that we talk about in terms of recovery quite a lot because when anyone is trying to heal from elements of pain, whether that's a traumatic experience, um, divorce, alcoholism, gambling, anything like that, mm-hmm. um, the the initial thought process is always that, oh, if I want to try to do something in order to achieve that, uh, that emotional uh, state of happiness. And it is, like you're saying, it's attached to a material uh, concept often. Mm-hmm. And yet that, in terms of recovery psychology, goes into what's called the cycle of pain and leads to just a, a, a very temporary uh, element of satisfaction, which then has, of course, possibly some unintended consequences and reignites guilt, shame, remorse, further feeding whatever the core concept of pain was to begin with. And this is what we're seeing constantly in the world today. Um, We can even see that, especially among our own Muslim community, with today being, as you you mentioned, the the 20th anniversary of of, uh, September 11th. And healing from such... A thing actually breaking such cycles is is something that is not easy to do but uh when we are looking at prophetic models uh like like from the hadith there you're giving guidelines in the islam the ihsan the iman um we have a a role model in the prophet that we can follow that helps us break three from these cycles and actually provides us with better than the emotional state of happiness that that head state that uh the material world wants us to achieve it's driving us for right this is what the dunya is pushing in entertainment all the time right and yet what islam actually provides us it says it in itself there it's the the peace mm-hmm. that uh, state of inner peace. Right, right. That's very beautiful. Uh, the person that I always think about when I think about spiritual recovery, just on, on Thursday night, I was at another masjid and uh, a brother came in and took his shahada. And uh, it was very beautiful. I was just talking with him afterwards. I said, what brought you to Islam? He said, um, I just been through a lot of pain and I couldn't figure out how to stop it and how to recover. And he said, I only found that Islam had my answers. And subhanAllah, one of the examples that we have in our history is Yusuf Islam. And when he was seven years old, his brothers tried to murder him. Like they literally tried to murder him. They threw him in this well, right? And the, and the intention was originally to kill him. They weren't going to throw him in a well. It was one of the divine interventions that caused him to have mercy. But throwing him in a deep well is the equivalent of killing him, essentially. They were going to leave him to die. And what happened? He then got picked up and sold as a slave. And he's seven years old. He's seven years old, subhanAllah. Then what happens? He goes and he works hard. He works hard. He does what he can in his ability. And this is one of the things that we need to focus on is what is in my sphere of control? I can only do so much. And one of the things that the mass media feeds us constantly is look at what's going on in X corner of the world, in this country, in this area, and there's a hurricane there and disaster there. But you're just like, what do I do about this? What do I do about this? And 
there's not much you can do many of the times. The thing is, we're not responsible for the entire planet. We are responsible for ourselves. We are responsible for our sphere of control, our people that we know and our families and our communities and our neighbors, but we're not responsible for the whole planet. So Yusuf he does what he can and he works very hard as a slave. Um, and he's hired, or I guess he's the slave of the Aziz, one of the ministers in Egypt. And what happens, this was the mercy and plan of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he's raised in actually a kingly household. He's educated by this minister on how to run a government. And these are opportunities he would never have gotten if he had stayed behind with his family. And of course, he's saddened, I'm sure, by what had occurred. And then what happens, even as a slave, he's then accused falsely. He's then in prison, and some say seven, I believe seven to 12 years is like the rough estimate of how many years he spent in prison despite having done nothing. Right, um, and there is an interview of T Brother Tobias Tubbs by Sheikh Hamza Yusuf a few days ago on sacred text messages that really reminded me of this story. Um, anyhow, so Yusuf Ali is thrown wrongfully in prison, and he's in prison for years and years and years, and eventually, this person who is supposed to he does a good turn for a person, he interprets a dream for a person, and he tells him that hey, when you get out. He, this person, he becomes the king's uh, cup servant. Essentially, he holds a cup for him. And he says, when you get out, tell, remind the king that I'm still in here. I haven't done anything wrong, but can you just mention my case to him? And it says, that once he got out, this cup bearer completely forgot about it. Shaitan made him forget about it. And Yusuf he withered away for another few years in the prison for a crime he did not commit. And then what happens eventually this cupbearer, he, the king wants to have uh, a person, you know, interpret his dream. And then finally the cupbearer remembers Yusuf And this is one of the beautiful stories. Even then the cupbearer comes and asks him for help. He didn't say, oh, you're that guy that I asked a favor for to literally get me out of prison for a crime I didn't do. He didn't say, he doesn't remind him of that. Instead he says, what can I do for you? And he interprets the dream first. And then he tells him that, hey, um, let me talk to the king myself. And essentially, he gets out and he goes to meet the king, talks to the king. The king is like, who are you and why are you in prison? And then, of course, the story comes out. He didn't actually do anything. And he becomes one of the ministers and he eventually becomes the Aziz himself, one of the high level ministers or even king like states. And he's in that state. He's able to serve the people for years and years because he he's able to predict this famine through his dream interpretation. And uh, eventually what happens? Those same brothers that try to kill him, literally kill him. And, you know, when you think of a family, people have disagreements generally like that's fairly normal. But you're the youngest brother. Usually youngest sibling, younger siblings are spoiled a little bit. Their older siblings are people they can look up to and trust, especially when you have 13 siblings. It's a lot of siblings, right? And uh, he's, those same siblings are now coming to him begging, literally begging for food. He doesn't laugh and say, oh, I remember you guys. Um, you know, like, what would we do? He doesn't even remind them that, hey, you guys wanted to kill me, right? And uh, now you're begging me for food, like how the tables have turned. He doesn't like do anything like that. And Yusuf Anisanam, this is a prophetic mercy. And I just think about like how much turmoil he must have had in his heart for those years and years. He doesn't know why his brothers tried to kill him. Like he, he doesn't understand that. As a child, what could he have done? 
what could he have possibly have done to warrant that, that hatred that they had in their heart? And instead, we know the story that Yusuf Islam, he forgives all of them and he invites them to come live with him and he takes care of them. And this is a beauty. Even uh, some, some narrations mention that same woman who wronged him, wrongfully accused him, Zuleikha, he actually ends up marrying her as well. And she was the reason that he was in prison for all those years wrongfully. So it just it's just a beautiful, beautiful story. And then the story of the Prophet where he conquers the city of Mecca, right? And he says that this is in the spirit of my dear brother Yusuf and a, a companion comes and he says, today is the day of basically destruction and revenge. And imagine you've been kicked out of your home. It's been 20 years since you've been in your home city. They've literally killed your brothers and sisters, tortured people. They've taken everything that you owned and worked for for years and years and years. And now you're coming back as a, the victor. And what happens in ancient times and also now, when people conquer cities, there's usually a lot of pillage. At the very least, people take things at the very least that's what they do um, and of course people do a lot more unfortunately but this is just the tradition of the world and this companion says at the very least we'll get revenge for the people who killed our brothers and sisters and parents and mothers and fathers and they did horrible things they did horrible things um the first martyr for islam was Sumayya, and she was killed in a horrible way right but uh all of these things have happened and transpired in the life of the companions and the Prophet you know, they, they kicked his daughter, um, they kicked his daughter's horse and she fell down while she was pregnant and she miscarried the baby, right? And then the Prophet's own son, he passed away and they cheered at the passing of his son, right? And imagine how painful that is, um, that a person has a child and they pass away, they bury them. The Prophet buried every single one of his children except Fatima during his lifetime. Every single painful experience we can imagine as human beings, the Prophet went through. Every single painful experience he went through. Um, and during the life of the Prophet, he endured so many challenges, so many, so much sacrifice he gave. And finally, he reaches the stage as the victor and he enters the city of Mecca. He says, and he says, today is not the day of carnage and and uh, slaying other people in revenge. He says, today is the day of mercy. And he says, I say to you, like my my the Prophet Yusuf said to his brothers, there's no blame on you today. And he turns over a new leaf. And what happens? Because of the immense mercy that he shows that day, so many of those people became Muslim. So many of those people became Muslim. And then there's a story of Ta'if, right? Where the Prophet he went to the city of Ta'if and he didn't go there to sell them something. He didn't go there to get votes. He just went there to see if the people there would accept the message, right? And the people there, not only did they not accept the message, they gathered all the hoodlums and the young boys and they pelted the Prophet with these stones. And he's walking with these stones um, being thrown at him um, and eventually there's blood coming out and filling his shoes. And this is the prophet of Allah. He can make dua that, oh Allah, wipe these people from the face of this earth. And an angel comes to him and asks him that very question, right? And imagine how much pain and suffering he just underwent. Um, and 
the angel asked him, should we eliminate these people from the face of this earth and the city of Ta'if? And the Prophet's vision, and we talked about vision this morning, vision is not one of this, the eyes, it is one of the heart. And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he says, no, don't, 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 uh, he makes dua for these people. He says, don't destroy these people. Maybe from amongst their next generation, there'll be believers who will change the world. And I personally am a descendant of Muhammad bin Qasim, who was the conqueror of India, who was from the city of Ta'if, right? From the dua of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, generations later, now it's been 1400 years, I'm actually a descendant from the city of Ta'if. Right, so this was a beauty of the Prophet's vision that he could see for generations and generations down what people could become, and this is the mercy of the Prophet. So there is another story, and this story just gets me, where the Prophet was on the battlefield, and someone hit people were hitting him and literally hitting him and attacking him and trying to kill him, and the Prophet was hit one time, and he was trying to catch his blood from going on the floor. And he is literally, people are trying to kill him at this time. It's in the middle of the battlefield. And the Prophet he's trying to catch his blood from going on the floor. And he says that, Oh Allah, Allah maghfirli qawmi fa'innahum la ya'lamun. That, Oh Allah, forgive my people because they don't know. And he's trying to catch the drops, droplets of blood because he said he doesn't want these droplets to testify on the Day of Judgment against his perpetrators. And this is just another level of emotional intelligence and mercy of the Prophet that he's so concerned with people who are literally trying to kill him during the moment he's being attacked, that he's even trying, he's thinking about their eternal fate and their futures um, as they are trying to attack him. And he's pray, literally praying for them on the battlefield. Allahumma qawmi that, oh Allah, forgive my nation. They don't know. They don't know what they're doing. And many of those people, they end up becoming Muslim. Like Khalid bin Walid radiallahu anhu, that he was not a Muslim. He was on the attacking side against the Prophet in the first battles. And he becomes one of the greatest Muslim legends till this day, right? And this was the character of the Prophet uh, Just interesting, I invited uh, one of my friends here uh, who was a Muslim. And um, one of the brothers asked a question to Brother Ramin. And he said, how do I tell people who are not Muslim about Islam? And I was just walking with this with this friend of mine, um, and he said I was telling him that uh, you don't really need to tell me much. <laughs> he said what I need to see is the mercy and brotherhood that you've you've been showing me. It's like the intellectual information about Islam, and I will say in my life I haven't really given him. I have in my experience with him, I should say I haven't given him anything really about what we believe. But more showing people mercy and community. And just like we were mentioning, when people see that, they will see Islam. They don't necessarily need to understand. That's one of the realizations I guess I've come to um, over the years and years of my own study of Islam, uh, where I've, I've deep dived into a few topics and a few areas of study. But I realized, um, and I was just listening to one of our teachers, Mufti Hussein Kamani, just two days ago. He was saying this. He says, I realize this too, that knowledge is, may not be the most important thing. Um, sometimes it's just about the sacrifice to get the knowledge. But most importantly, it's about just showing love and community to other people, right? And uh, I realized this, uh, especially Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, he tallied that the Prophet, وسلم, he fed 500,000 people in his lifetime. 500,000 meals in a city of 2,000 people. That is just an incredible amount of, uh, it's just so beautiful that he fed 500,000 people. <laughs> it's just mind boggling that how can a person feed 500,000 people 
in a city of literally 2,000 people, right? Um, so yeah, yeah, that's just a, the emotional recovery. I think Yusuf Ali some story is really one we can reflect and learn a lot from. I think that's an amazing story because this is one that we don't only find in the Islamic tradition. This is in all of the Abrahamic traditions. Absolutely. The, the Jews have the first, obviously, recording in, in their tradition in the, the book of Genesis. I, I studied this as a Jew, and then obviously I grew up as a Christian. Right. Um, and the Christians, of course, hold the same scriptures. And it's it's a beautiful story. It, it, one of the best stories this Quran actually sells us. And right, right, right. The, you know... I think it was last year or the year before Hostad um, Murmani Khan had this uh, group of very good students of knowledge together and they were doing this really big deep dive on Surah Yusuf yeah. and I, I haven't finished making it through the entire recording of it but it reminded me so much of my university days when I was studying biblical Hebrew going through these passages and just deep diving the text and my, my Arabic is not to that level yet so okay. but inshallah, inshallah. just, just seeing what levels of scholarship can do uh in providing understanding more uh knowledge to things like that but as you were saying as well scholars have even also said that it, it's not necessarily even so much in the learning mm -hmm. as it is in the experience and in the practice Mm -hmm. And I think that's actually more where I was hoping to take our conversation today originally yeah. anyway, too, is about um, the scholars and uh, people of knowledge, mentors, wisdom, teachers, um, people like that. Because you are one who has studied with many, many people. Um, you, obviously, you, you got your, your medical degree. Um you also sit down with lots of shayuk in the area, um, constantly traveling and gaining as much knowledge and wisdom. But there's also, it's that subtlety, the baraka in just being in the presence Absolutely. as well, Absolutely. that obviously you learn so much um, in terms of knowledge, but the wisdom that can be gained from the, the sunnah, mm. right? And obviously we have Yusuf, we have the Prophet Muhammad salam. All of the the prophets have their their sunnah, how they lived their lives, and in the passing down of transmission, we have our scholars today that are as best as they are able, right? Uh, still embodying the tradition for us to follow, and having that connection and that tie is such a blessed thing. So there before a, I ask you some questions, yes, yes, please go ahead. There is a incident a few weeks ago during Ramadan when we were doing that weekly dhikr, there was a younger brother and uh, he said that there aren't any good Muslims in America. And subhanAllah, I just remember thinking about that. There's a beautiful narration of the Prophet Sallallahu uh, I don't remember the exact words, but something along the lines of there are going to be 300 people who have the spirituality of a prophet alive in this ummah at all times. And uh, we know that each generation, each each hundred years is going to be a mujaddid, a renewer of the faith that will come every century, right? And uh, Allahu Alam, who exactly that is, or what movement, or what group, or if that's a single person or not, but these are people that will come and renew our faith every generation. So there are people who are absolutely at very high spiritual levels and high spiritual states it comes in the quran 
Verily, the people, only the people who fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are the righteous of the scholarships, righteous scholars, right? Rough translation. So essentially, a person, he spends his life sitting with the scholars and elders and teachers. And there's information. Information can be gleaned on YouTube. Uh, information can be gleaned on autoplay. A person's reading about all the different, for example, in medicine, we study um, all the different gene mutations, that there's this number of gene mutation. This is all information. Uh, it is not information that impacts a spirit, our spirituality or our practice. In, in reality, it does not do those things. Um, information can be tax codes. It can be laws. Um, knowledge is something that impacts us spiritually. And it comes in the Quran, Ya amanu lima ma That, oh, you who believe, why do you say what you don't do? Right? So knowledge has to be something that a person applies practically in every aspect of his life. And uh, there's a beautiful, beautiful book called Min Safahat Sabri Al-Ulama uh, by Sheikh Abu Fattah Abu Ghudda. Um, this translates to roughly from the stories of the patience of the scholars. And uh, essentially, we look at our history, Islamic history, it's really mind-boggling how many sacrifices our scholars and teachers have given. Uh, Abu Hurairah, for example, is starting all the way at the beginning. Uh, he didn't have, he basically had nothing. He was a homeless man. He had nothing. And oftentimes it said about him that he would just, it would look like he was having a fit. It said that people used to put their head on, on his, uh, their feet on his neck. And that was uh, considered to be the cure for people who had psychotic breakdowns at that time. And people would do that often to him. And he actually mentioned that he was never having a psychotic breakdown. He was just so hungry that he started having these fits and he dedicated the entirety of his life just to preserving the hadith of the Prophet such to a point where he could have gone out and he could have worked in agriculture. The people in Medina worked in agriculture. The people in Mecca worked in the caravan business, right? He could have gone out and done these things, right? Um, our, our teacher, Sheikh Hamza, he mentions, I could have gone out and built a real estate empire in my 30s. He's like, but that's not what matters, right? So uh, these people gave these sacrifices, um, such immense, immense sacrifices. One of the students of uh, Imam Abu Hanifa, um, it said about him that he used to actually literally grind up chilies and then he would rub them in his eyes as a paste to keep himself awake, to narrate the hadith and the teachings of, his, of Abu, Imam Abu Hanifa, right? And this is just another level of dedication. Imagine literally grinding up chili peppers and putting it in your eyes and it's just it's not something that you try at home obviously but uh our teacher even habib umar rahimahullah he says uh habib umar is currently about 40 years old and he became a very very great scholar early in his life and uh one of the stories about him is that he used to study on the top of a building on a cliff uh, basically he would sit on the edge of the roof and uh the reason was he wanted to maximize his time to such a degree. So he felt if he studied at the top of, I believe it was a five-story building, he used to sit on the top of the roof and his legs would be dangling over the side. And I guess his idea was that uh, the fear from him falling down would prevent him from falling asleep, like the adrenaline rush. And actually one of the stories mentioned about him, and this is when they knew that he was a very great spiritual person, is one day he fell off. <laughs> 
he actually fell off a five-story building while he was studying and he just got up and kept walking <laughs> and this was seen by many many people um so this is one of the miracles of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um a person who really wants to achieve spirituality has to sit with people of spirituality and just like it's commonly said you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with um and one of our teachers imam mendez he was telling me um he says a lot of people complain to me in america there's no spiritual people there's no this there's no that it's like well a this is a country of mobility so you can move that's you're not necessarily determined to spend your entire life in one place this is the kind of people move often as many times in their lifetimes. Um, you can move. B, you can always find spiritual people in every situation that you're in. Um, and they might not be Muslim, but if they remind you of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this is a person of spirit. I remember there was a patient I had, um, and he was a person who was undergoing great turmoil in his life. Uh, and he'd just been through a divorce. He was having a custody battle. And, you know, we would see him to do work and, and uh, see him periodically. And I remember uh, the assistants really did not like me because we used to talk very, very long uh, after appointment times, um, not related to his health per se, physically, but talk about his emotional well-being. And this was a person who really reminded me of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because he had such a strong belief in his own faith uh, and he was a Christian, but he had very, very strong belief in his own faith. And there was another professor I had at school. Uh, he had two children who were disabled. And um, it was very, very difficult for him. Life was very difficult because full-time care of disabled people is very challenging. It is very, very challenging. It's emotionally taxing, um, and it never ends. Uh, you know, you never see an end for it in the future. And it's going to be a lifetime of just essentially making sure that they're doing well. And he uh, was very, very strong in his own faith and his own convictions. And this is a person that inspired me. And this is a person of great spirituality. Um, and he wasn't Muslim per se. And I pray that Allah makes them both Muslim. But uh, people who remind you of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you need to be around those people. Um, and you need to visit those people and you need to visit the gathering of those, of those people. And even if you can't do it physically, now it's so easy to do it virtually. It's very, very easy. Um, I will just plug one organization is Al-Maqasid um, out of Pennsylvania, which Yahya wrote us. Um, I have actually never physically been there. I have been following, they have an online podcast. They have live streams almost every single day on their Facebook, YouTube, Telegram. Um, this organization, a person can plug into their programming, and this is a means of great spiritual benefit. Um, so this is just one example. But today, especially with COVID, it's very easy for us to plug in virtually, at the very least, to gatherings of spirituality. And we should try to create physical gatherings and space as well. If we don't have these in our cities, we should invite scholars and people of spirituality to maintain our hearts in a certain state. Otherwise, um, we'll have very very much difficult time to advance ourselves spiritually without people there to guide us, right? Um, and yeah, it's very important to have a teacher and mentor every stage of your life. There's always somebody who's done it before. Um, that's one of the things about life is now we're at a stage, especially more so, but we can learn from the mistakes of so many people before us, right? And if we just find someone who's done what we've done, most likely, 90% of the things that you've gone through, someone else has already gone through them. Someone else has already done them. So you just need to find that person and uh, ask them for help 
and that can be your your mentorship your spiritual mentorship as well and finding people who are willing to help you and you'll find that most people are willing to help you that's what i found in, in my own experience um for whatever thing it is that you need help with you'll find someone who's willing to help you, you just have to ask and it takes some courage to ask definitely but you should ask you should ask um and there's a book by tim ferris called tribe of mentors um and essentially he talks about this idea of cold calling people um, and essentially he emails or cold calls a bunch of people to try to ask them for help and he gets responses from many of them maybe not all of them but many of them um, I've tried this personally with not necessarily for worldly gains as he as he did it for but um, just people who you want to engage them and find out more about their life journey and their thoughts why not just ask and you'll find that most people will respond and be willing to help you yeah, just recently I was actually doing that with a visit I had down to the Bay Area. Yeah. And uh, mashallah, if I hadn't learned that practice through the dunya in sales yeah. <laughs> about a decade and a half ago, uh, I probably would have never learned how to build up the courage to do that in my spiritual life uh, on travels down to go visit or attempts to go visit scholars and things like that. And yeah, you, you will naturally have success to varying degrees, but... That, that is very good advice and wisdom to make the attempts. You know, uh, we are very much a religion of intention, right? Mm -hmm. And the reward is for that, not necessarily for the outcome. Absolutely. So when we're making that intention, building the courage, and then even putting in some action and effort into a potential result, it's that initial intention where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to reward. Yeah. We may not get what we were looking for out of it. The benefit may be something we won't even realize for years to come. But, um, yeah. So there was a statement you said earlier. Um, I think it was on the order of, like, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Mm -hmm. Was that correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. That was beautiful. Um, and that's actually what I would love to talk about because this is something... I have very much understood in my life, and I know you've put into practice in yours. So to move the conversation in this direction, who are some... Actually, no, start this way. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about your journey through... Uh, you can start with mentorship or however you'd like, but um, tell us about your journey and the people that you have spent time with. Um, and perhaps even maybe some benefits that you found personally or weren't expecting to find in yeah. the practice. So I'll start all the way at the beginning. Um, we grew up originally, I was born in New York, but we moved to Pine Bluff, Arkansas. And Pine Bluff, Arkansas was a tiny, tiny town. I moved there when I was four years old. And there was one masjid there, and there was maybe 100 Muslims. And it was, those were the days of the yellow pages. So you looked in the yellow pages. Is this a Muslim-sounding name? Let me call them and see if they know where I can get halal food or, you know, anything. Uh, at that time, my mom had three, three essentially babies. So it was me, my sister, who was a year older than me, and my younger sister, who was a year younger than me. So she had three babies. She just moved to the middle of Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Doesn't know anybody. Um, she had moved from Pakistan four years earlier, or they were in the UK for a few years before that. But she doesn't necessarily have the support system she enjoyed um, before, and she just moved to a new city. They don't know anybody. Um, 
so there had there was one masjid there and uh, actually my grandmother she had this this dream for me that I would memorize the Quran one day <laughs> and uh, she told my mom this when I was born that this child of yours will memorize the Quran and I made dua for this and this will happen <laughs> and uh, it, it was in my parents mind to make that happen so there was a local the imam there he had just moved from India Hafiz Burhan who is my first Quran teacher who I still keep up to 20 years later is talking about mentorship uh, he now lives in Chicago um, but Hafiz Burhan he, we learned our first uh, our first Arabic letterings. I remember uh, Alif Bata when I was probably six or seven years old, and I memorized my first surahs of the Quran with Hafiz Burhan. And uh, Subhanallah, as life would have it, he ended up moving to New Orleans, and eventually Katrina hit New Orleans, and he moved to Dallas. And there was another earthquake or hurricane in Dallas. I can't remember what it was called. Um, but at that point, we were thinking of moving our family to Phoenix. My dad was thinking of moving to Phoenix for more opportunities. And specifically, there was an Islamic school there called Arizona Cultural Academy uh, that my dad wanted me to join. And then also there was a health program there, a memorization of the Quran program there that he wanted me to join as well. So we moved our family to Arizona from Arkansas and it just happened my dad contacted Hafiz Burhan and he had just moved to Phoenix. And literally Hafiz Burhan picked us up from the airport. We went to his house. I remember we had some fish similar to the fish we had a few weeks ago. Um, and we went to his apartment and uh, we hang out with Hafiz Burhan. And my dad actually hired him um, as his office manager. Um, and Hafiz Burhan kind of remained a part of my life until today. He still is a part of my life. My sister lives in Chicago. Um, so when we go up to visit my sister, Hafiz Burhan is always on my mind. How can I spend some time with him? Um, and he is a, a man of great spiritual power. And when you see him, he's not necessarily an imam of anything. He's not necessarily a person who anyone really looks twice at. But he is a person of immense spiritual power. And everything I have... I actually owe to Hafiz Burhan because he taught me the Quran and what could be a greater blessing than that. And every single time I recite the Quran, he is going to get the reward for that for my entire life. Every student I've ever taught, I've had about 300 students in my lifetime, alhamdulillah. Every single student that I've ever had, he's going to get the reward for that as well. And uh, subhanAllah, so Hafiz Burhan was one of my first teachers. And then essentially we moved from there to Arkansas about three years later. And I joined a Hifth program, Memorization of the Quran program. And there was uh, three teachers there. Um, and one was from South Africa. He was the principal. And uh, then there was two, there was a Pashtun, two Pashtun brothers from northern Pakistan, uh, Hafid Ridwan and Hafid Ghufran. And I still keep up with both of them as well. I just saw them a few weeks ago. Uh, they're both imams in Phoenix currently. And then there was Hafiz Muhammad Ahmed Ibrahim, uh, who was actually from the Seattle area. And he had moved to Phoenix and he was a college student at that time, I remember, um, because I was so impressed with him. But he was actually only like seven years older than me. <laughs> and he had won the World Quran Competition in Dubai in 2010. And I was like, wow, you have so many views on YouTube. It was so cool. And uh, Hafiz Muhammad, he used to spend a lot of time, he would spend time teaching us, but he actually spent a lot more time playing soccer with us um, and getting us pizza and donuts. And uh, th that's kind of where I learned a lot of khidmah. Um, and especially with Hafiz Ridwan, we traveled to San Diego, I remember, um, and we spent some time just cleaning masjids. And we just traveled, clean masjids, make food for people. 
and it was just so beautiful. Um, I really learned that service, the importance of service to other people and to your students, because Javier de Duan didn't need to take me to San Diego. He, that wasn't his job. Um, Hafiz Muhammad didn't need to, you know, take me to play soccer. That wasn't his job. It wasn't, he just said, I'm clocking out, I'm done. I don't need to be here. Um, but they spend their time and effort and energy and actually service. And uh, the ultimate thing for me that really became a turning point in my life uh, when I was 14, or no, I was, yeah, I was 14, um, there was a visiting sheikh from Australia, Sheikh Muhammad Shakib. And uh, he had come to lead Tarawih prayers in uh, one of the masjids in Mesa, Arizona, which is just a small city, uh, or a, a suburb, I should say, of Phoenix, essentially. And uh, he had come all the way from Australia, and he was staying in the masjid. And one of my, the board members suggested that I lead Tarawih with him, and I could do four rakahs out of the 20, and then I could kind of learn something. And then um, they also suggested that I just stay with him the whole month. And it was like my summer break, and I was like in 10th grade. And then I was like, um, I don't know. I, I don't know how that's going to be. I've ne I'd never moved out of the house before, never really gone. We didn't really go to summer camps or anything like that ever in my life. I was like, uh. also, the, uh, the place that they gave us, I'm not even kidding. This place was literally slated for destruction. And they had a wrecking ball come and they destroyed it after we left. Um, like it was not necessarily, I mean, it was fine. It was acceptable. But essentially, I remember you had to wear like very heavy slippers because the tiles, it looked like someone had taken a sledgehammer and just slammed it in random places. And if you walked without it, your feet would get cut because there's random jaggedy tiles everywhere. Um, also, there was no AC and it was Arizona summers. So it was literally 110 degrees. Um, there wasn't really, I can't remember if there was running water or not in that apartment. There wasn't the masjid, so you could always go to the masjid if you needed to. Um, but yeah. I, I said, okay. I kind of reluctantly said, okay. Uh, I'll, I said, I'll stay with him. And I was designated as his khadim, as basically his servant. Um, and he didn't need anything. Like he, he, I don't think he ever asked me for anything ever. Um, but I maybe did his laundry one time in the month. And that was me because I was doing laundry that day. Um, but he never, I spent a month with him. I remember he never once got angry. Um, he never once, he never once wasted any time and it was just so extraordinary. Uh, he never, I, I don't think I saw him sleep. I don't think I saw him sleep. And I remember there was two bedrooms essentially. So I had the, the master bedroom. Um, there was nothing in there. I just had a sleeping bag. That was the only thing in the entire room. Uh, and then I had a, a gym bag with some clothes that I brought with me. Um, and we stayed the month of Ramadan there and essentially there was literally nothing in the apartment and they had they had actually furnished his room which was a good idea um, and they had like a bed set essentially for him um, he would be praying he, we would pray Tarawih prayer and then every day after Isha prayer after Tarawih is completed we would have a dinner and somebody they would assign people from the community to bring food for him and people would just sit and ask him questions every single night for the entire month of Ramadan. And I remember there's discussions about car financing, there's discussions about spiritual recovery, there's discussions about politics, anything you could imagine. And this was an open gathering for anyone to come and enjoy dinner and ask any questions. And this was every single night. And it was very, very beautiful. Um, and in that moment, I wanted to be nothing other than him. Uh, he was just a magnanimous person. 
And every time he would enter the masjid, people would just rush to greet him. And he was just a very beautiful person. And if you search him online, you won't find a single thing about him. He He's not famous. Um, no one really knows who he is. But he was a person of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Sheikh Shakib really, he changed my life. He really, really changed my life. And one of the things about him is, uh, and we were talking about basira and spiritual vision. And he told me, he said, a few years from now, you will move to a city and you will change its entire state. And you'll change the spiritual state of the city. And subhanAllah, at th this time I was 14 years old. I was not necessarily a very astute person. I definitely had no wisdom. Uh, just a, a normal kid, a 14 year old kid. And he saw a lot in me about what I could become. Right? And this was a vision that he had. And we had a lot of deep discussions. So we would essentially have this dinner thing. And then uh, he would go into the tajud prayer. And he would complete recitation of, he completed a recitation of the Quran in the masjid during tarawih. But then he would do another Quran in his own private time uh, during the time after, um, after the dinner, before the Fajr prayer. Then after the Fajr prayer, we would have the Fajr prayer. He would sit and read Quran till the sunrise time, um, at which point we would pray our duha prayer and pray. And then I would go back into the apartment and go to sleep. Um, usually during this time, he would start his reading. He would start reading. He had many books. He had a great, great love for knowledge. He just had, he just couldn't stop. He could not stop learning. Even when he would be sleeping, he would constantly be playing. He had these Arabic lectures that he used to play. I didn't understand a word of them. And he would just be playing these consistently. He said, if I wake up from my sleep, maybe I'll get something from the few moments when I wake up. And this is how much he just, it was just unbelievable that this person existed. And uh, I remember he had uh, he had eight kids, he had two wives, he, had, he was a principal of a school, he did a lot of things in his life. And he was just constantly like trying to learn more, trying to learn more, trying to learn more. And he had graduated, he'd spent 10 years in Islamic schools learning. And now he's still, he said that was just the beginning of my knowledge. And he said all that did was qualify me to study. <laughs> SubhanAllah. So Mala Shakib, Sheikh Shakib was just a truly extraordinary person. And I spent month with month with him and I just thought a lot more about what I wanted to do with my life. And I remember I told my dad, I said, I don't want to go back to high school. Uh, I said, I want to leave now. And I want to go to boarding school and never come back to this stuff. I was a fairly good student in high school, um, very promising future ahead of me. And uh, I said, I just don't want to do this. And subhanAllah, this is something that's always stuck in the back of my mind as I've gone through my life. Um, but essentially, my other teachers said, you should definitely not do that. And you should stay in high school. Uh, basically... One of the people that Sheikh Shakib he introduced me to was another brother, Hafiz Yasser Ali. And Hafiz Yasser, I just talked to him yesterday. Uh, I met him. It's been now 14, uh, 11 years since he moved to Phoenix. At that time, he was in law school at UC Berkeley. Uh, or he had just finished law school at UC Berkeley. And he had moved to Phoenix to get his first corporate job. And uh, his wife was actually a student dentist um, at AT Still, which is in Mesa. And uh, Hafiz Yasser, he was the first person that to me, I could see myself in him. Um, 
and a lot of the mentors i grew up in a community a pakistani predominantly community and one of the things was when speakers or people would come they didn't speak english they speak spoke urdu or they spoke arabic sometimes they didn't speak english they weren't born in america they didn't know anything about america and they had spiritual benefits for sure but i never saw myself in them and Mala Shakib, he was he was Sheikh Shakib. He was raised in Australia, so he understood a lot of like Western culture. Um, but even then, there was an element of him because he spent twenty years living in India, and then he moved to Malaysia. There were some things that he didn't necessarily. I didn't necessarily see myself becoming him. But when I met Hafiz Yasser Ali, uh, who is still a wonderful personality in the Phoenix area, has been volunteering there for years and years and years and now he's a lawyer in islamic estate planning um i just saw myself in him and i remember he used to drive he wanted me to study at the Juid with him and now i think about this and I, I think about the significance of what he did for me is i was 14 at that time and he was a lawyer he used to drive to come visit me every single day when i was staying in that masjid and he would come and we would read for 30 minutes, an hour. And he was also the imam at that time of another masjid. And he was a lawyer and a husband and all the other things that he was doing. And he was coming driving to come see me as a 14 year old. And I just, uh, I was genuinely baffled uh, that this man, he's going to UC Berkeley, he also went to Harvard and he went to like these fancy name institutions, though he never told me any of those things. Um, I actually found out years later, literally like seven, eight years later that he actually went to these schools. But uh, he never once mentioned any of those things. He just said, I'm a student just like you, but I just want to review some Quran with you. And that's how he phrased it. And uh, I said, sure, I'd, I'd love to review some Quran. And, uh, and then he said, you know, we should talk a little bit about public speaking sometime. <laughs> and that's how he phrased it. He's like, maybe one day you'll end up giving the khutbah or something like that. So maybe let's just talk about it a little bit. And subhanAllah, I remember just uh, in Thanksgiving weekend, or not Thanksgiving, I was over uh, this last August in Phoenix and he texted me and said, you're giving the khutbah tomorrow. And I gave the khutbah. I remember he was sitting there in like the fifth row and I was like, wow, this is happening. And subhanAllah, it was really a prophetic moment um, because he had told me I'd be doing that 10 years earlier and this was also a khutbah in the school that my parents moved me to in Arizona, Arizona Cultural Academy. And I was giving the khutbah in the same place that I had once been a student and I graduated in 2013. And now I'm in the same masjid giving the khutbah now on the opposite side. And it was really a moment where I saw many of my old classmates actually were there in the khutbah. People I went to high school with who were still involved in that community, which is very beautiful. And uh, it was a very profound moment for me, actually, um, where I realized kind of the spiritual journey that I had been on all of these years and will continue being on. But Hafiz Yasser was a very, very tremendous influence in my life because I remember he was telling me and he just told me that he uh, lived in Boston uh, while he was at Harvard. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, he was just telling me that he learned Tajweed from a sheikh in Ohio. I was like, wait, but you lived in Boston, didn't you? And he was like, yeah, I used to drive you know, 10 hours Friday night, uh, try, drive down to Ohio. And he said we would read with the sheikh after Fajr for one hour and then I would drive back. <laughs> and subhanAllah, I was like, that is, 
that is just incredible. SubhanAllah, and I, I've driven quite a bit to visit my teachers and that's always been my inspiration because I just remember, well, Hafiz Yasser did that. <laughs> I was like, well, he was a grad student. So there's not really any reason that I'm busier. And uh, when he moved, he eventually moved to Michigan for a year and he was doing the same thing as driving down to Ohio from Michigan. <laughs> and it's like, that's a long drive, man. That's a really long drive. And subhanAllah, Hafiz Yasser just had a tremendous impact and we created this little a group of hafaz of people who have memorized the Quran in Phoenix. And um, it's now been, wow, it's been eight, nine years since we started these classes. And we would meet on Saturdays and Sundays after Fajr prayer. And I remember, literally I remember Hafiz Yasser had two kids. We read in the morning of the birth of both of those kids. And I remember his wife would be in the on the hospital, like we're waiting. And I remember he was just so committed. I remember the day that his second kid was born. I was like, I should really do something to celebrate that he came here. Um, and I remember we, I made him like some chicken, just some food, so that they could their family could kind of get through the day. Uh, but I was I was genuinely bowled over that he was there teaching me. Like I'm not even anything, and he's there teaching me literally on the day that his baby's being born and he was just it was just genuinely mind-blowing to me that this man is here and uh somehow we kept up a relationship uh till today like i mentioned i was talking two days ago and uh every time i visit phoenix almost every time i see him in one of the masjids he's been active in pretty much every masjid in phoenix just giving lectures meeting people inviting scholars and teachers um, and he invited many scholars to Phoenix area, like Sheikh Tamim Ahmadi, Mufti Abdullah Nana, and many other of his own teachers and luminaries. Um, one of those beautiful, beautiful moments was the completion of the Quran ceremony that we had, um, I believe it was three years ago, 2019. And he invited that same teacher from Ohio to actually come to Phoenix. And he had been reading with him. And the knowledge that he was learning from that teacher, he taught me. And he taught four or five of my other friends. And uh, we had a ceremony where it was the ceremonial tying of the turban. We did that at Dastar Bandi, where essentially the teacher, he puts a turban on top of the student to signify spiritual inheritance that this person is now capable and worthy. Allah make that actually true uh, of receiving this knowledge. And it was one of the most beautiful moments of my life. And I remember seeing Hafiz Yasser, and this is a man who is a lawyer of a high caliber. And he had worked at one of those fancy law firms in downtown Phoenix. And eventually at this point, I believe he had owned his own law firm. And he was doing quite well, mashallah, bless him and increase him. But the humility he showed in front of his teacher, you would have thought he was like a 10 year old in front of like a very immense person. And I remember he was just running to get his teacher's shoes, just everything possible for the comfort of the sheikh. Um, and it was just genuinely very, very, that this is, this is something else. This is not the way of the dunya that people, I remember one of the things that disturbed me so much seeing, uh, seeing somebody in high school, they put their shoes on top of their biology book. And this just spiritually disturbed me. It's like, they have so little respect for knowledge that mud and flakes from their shoes are now attached to the pages of the book. And then I remember sitting with our teachers and we had to sit in the position of uh, Salah when we were doing a recitation of the Quran like this, um, the sitting position of Salah. 
for the entirety of our classes. And our classes were sometimes eight hours long. And I remember we had a marble floor in in the uh, in the masjid, and you would get the the basically how they would judge how good of a student you were is if you had a huge welt right here on your ankle that meant you were actually sitting properly on the marble floor and if you didn't have it or yours was smaller you weren't doing things properly so literally you would physically be able to see like how so there was such an emphasis on respect and respect of knowledge um and i really learned that through seeing and observing my teachers. And of course, um, I met Sheikh Qasim in, from Seattle and Sheikh Omer. And uh, Sheikh Qasim especially, and, and also Sheikh Omer, I should say, seeing their organization, Mihrab Foundation, um, I learned about them just online and also through my other teacher, Sheikh Hamza Wad Makhul, who's in Chicago. And uh, seeing them, I just said that it was just something that convinced me that just seeing them, that Islam is true. is one of the things that I, I became a speaker at a college uh, on religion, religious studies and a religious studies class. And one of the things I kind of got into, and this was when I was 15 or so, I kind of got into a lot of debate and polemics on Islam, like why is Islam true and scientific miracles and this and that. And all of those have a place there's great debaters like Ahmed Didat in Islamic history, but uh, that's not really what wins people over. And nobody wins in an argument. Everybody's looking to prove their own viewpoint, generally speaking. So what I learned from Sheikh Qasim and Hafiz Yasser and Mala Shakib is more how to attract people's hearts. And that is through khidmat and service, feeding people, serving people, being humble. It's not about giving lectures and long talks. And uh, the Prophet's khutbah was always shorter than his salah. So that means his khutbah is literally two to three minutes, maybe five minutes. Uh, and his prayer was longer, right? So he never gave like these long talks. But there was a story of the Prophet where he was standing on top of a cliff. And there is a valley full of sheep. And uh, essentially, you can think about it like its value is in millions of dollars. And a man came and he said uh, he was just looking with him. And the Prophet, he wasn't Muslim. And the Prophet, he said, do you like what you see? And it was the spoils of war, literally worth millions of dollars. It's like hundreds and hundreds of sheep as far as the eyes can see. And this was a currency of their day, having animals. And uh, the man says, that's that's incredible and the prophet said it's all yours he said just take it and this man was just like genuinely baffled that you are going to give me literally millions of dollars without even thinking twice and this man immediately took the shahada immediately took the shahada that this there's no way this can be false and i remember one of our hadith teachers and i'll just close on this because uh, i know if kind of rambled on with this question. One of our Hadith teachers, there was a student who was late one day, and then he was late another day for the Hadith class. It was like at 10 a.m. And our teacher, he said, why are you late? Uh, he didn't ask him the first time. The second time I said, why are you late? Is everything okay? And he said, I had to drop my kid to school, and the bus was late, and this and that, and he didn't have a car. And the Sheikh, he said, why didn't you just tell me you didn't have a car? And he just gave him his car on the spot. He just gave him his car, and he only had one car. And I was just like, how can a person be so unattached to the dunya that he's just, he just gives him his car and he doesn't even think twice about it. He just gives it away. 
And subhanAllah, that's when uh, you just realize that our scholars and teachers and people of spiritual elevation, they really don't think like the rest of the world. Um, and it's, it's just subhanAllah, when a person reaches a certain spiritual state, uh, it said about him, like uh, one of our teachers gave this example to me, he said that we used to have uh, in Arizona State University, we had a bunch of Arabic uh, letters on the ground as like decoration. And you would walk by them and people didn't know what they were. They didn't know it was Arabic. And I had a friend named Abu Bakr, Allah bless him and increase him. He's now a prison chaplain in Phoenix. Um, we we kind of walked about and, uh, you know, once he started learning how to read the Quran, he started recognizing that there's words on the floor, like this Arabic language is actually words. And our teacher mentioned that that is what spiritual elevation does to you that before you had these life events and you didn't really even notice them. And maybe you just walked over, literally walked over them and you didn't notice what was going on, but now you can see clearly and you can see the meanings and interpretation of these events. And that is what spirituality does to you. It opens your eyes to this new vision. And this shift, he could see that the car isn't worth anything and he was so concentrated on answering this person's problems that he was able to just give away the car without a second thought, right? And that's what spiritual states does. Being a spiritual person, being a person of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you start understanding what is reality. And like we were discussing this morning, like what is real and what is fake? And we are in the age of the Dajjal. And what does Dajjal mean? The root word of Dajjal is deception. That this is an age of immense deception. Once a person starts being able to see through deception, this is basira. This is a divine vision that we pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants us. And yeah, we'll stop there, inshallah. MashaAllah. JazakAllah, brother. There is so much in what you just shared. And I could go on talking with you for ages about a lot of this to, to deep dive, which we don't have time because we know Maghrib is approaching us. I just want to try to wrap up with just a couple questions. Um, the 12 step program, uh, that I, I work through in, in mentoring and trying to help, uh, brothers coming through recovery. Mm -hmm. One of the main elements of it is connecting with a mentor. Mm. So from your experience of sitting with, with these wonderful people, um, for someone who ha has never had such, uh, an opportunity who's never been able to be among them not just for the knowledge that they can gain but for primarily the facilitation of insight that their presence brings mm -hmm. what can you tell the listener in terms of how they can gain access to this what, what's the, what's the easiest method to find someone who can be a a teacher yeah i would say that Number one is try to be active in your local masjid. Try to go to your local masjid. Um, maybe you'll find some teacher there. It's possible. Uh, you may not find necessarily a formal teacher. You might not have formal classes, but just sitting with people of spirituality um, at the very least. And some of the people I've learned the most from in my life haven't been formal teachers that I've ever had classes with, right? But it's just in these conversations, um, and there's two brothers here at, at the masjid that I often speak to, um, and I see them pretty much every single day, that uh, have taught me a lot, have 
taught me a lot just in seeing them for prayers and daily conversations. Um, so I would say that number one is try to be active in your local masjid. It should be the goal of a believer to try to go. My teacher, Sheikh Hussein Sattar, he gave me this advice to try to go to the masjid every single day once per day at the very minimum, right? So trying to be number one active in your local masjid um, and you can start there and try to see if you can meet people. M most of the time you'll find at least one to two people who can inspire you in some way. Maybe they can teach you something. Maybe they can't necessarily teach you a lot of things, but they can teach you something and you can take something. Um, number two is try your best to get connected to local scholars. Um, every city does have scholars of some sort. And if they don't, then try to bring them or move somewhere that does. And at the very least, what you can do immediately is virtually plug in and connect with the scholars and teachers. Uh, the resource I mentioned is Al Maqasid. Um, that is one one re institute that has a lot of work online. Seekers Guidance has a lot of work online that you can listen to and plug into. There's various resources available online, but I think you have to get connected to something. Um, that's very, very important. And also don't be intimidated. Um, I was just talking, we had an interviewee in our residency program and they were telling me that they were so intimidated by all the titles that people have, all these doctorate degrees and this and that. The reality is we're all just human beings. Um, everybody's a human being, it doesn't matter. Everybody uses a bathroom just like everyone else. Um, and we shouldn't be intimidated if somebody has a really long beard or their fancy cloaks or something like that. That doesn't necessarily preclude you from talking to them. And a lot of people sometimes have this hesitation and they say, oh, you know, I'm so sinful. How can I go to the masjid? How can I do this? How can I do that? But uh, the masjid should really be a place of spiritual recovery where people go to fix themselves, right? So that is where you should go and that is where you belong. Um, it's not for perfect people or, you know, I don't wear a hijab. How can I go to the masjid? You know, it's not necessarily about that um, and I'll say our masjids definitely have room to improve in that regard but um, I think connecting yourself to local events and scholars in most major cities in the United States and Canada um, and even our teach I know some teachers in Brazil and South America and in many countries in the world there's definitely people of scholarship and knowledge that are visiting at the very least even if they don't live there and try to go and just sit in the programs and you'll learn the etiquettes and the other as you sit in them um, and just show up is is kind of what i would say it's just show up and also try your best to actually talk with the scholars and teachers that come uh, they might do a lecture or a program try to go up i remember we had this uh, this teacher that would visit us and what we would do is as kids, we would all line up and everybody would go and shake his hand. And then we'd go to the back of the line and do it again and again and again. And a lot of the barakah just comes from talking to them and being with them and shaking their hand. Uh, one of our teachers, he said about Imam Zaid, Imam Zaid Shakir, he said, um, if all we did is pass Imam Zaid Shakir's name in a note between us, there'll be a lot of benefit that will come to the ummah, right? Just the the spiritual impact of being around these people is very, very great. So I would advise everyone, just just go to some of these programs and attend them virtually if you can't go in person, if you don't have anything. Uh, definitely there's a lot going on online um, that you can attend and be a part of. So I'll just close with, with this because uh, this week, Sidi Osama Kanan, Osama Osama Kanan from Ta'lib Collective passed away. He was also a person that had a profound impact on my life. Um, I was volunteering at a fundraiser, I remember, and uh, Brother Osama Kanan 
I probably met him seven, eight times in my life. He would travel to Phoenix um, when he was working with Dalif Collective, a beautiful organization. And I remember one day we, he was talking to this fundraiser and I was just like a, essentially a doorman type person. I was volunteering as a teenager. I just like handing out tickets or something like that. And uh, he's about to go on this big stage in front of 400 people. And uh, he comes up to me and I was like looking around like, is he really looking at me? And he's like, what should I say? <laughs> and he was just like, what should I say in this presentation, this speech? Like, what should I talk about? And so I was just like, are you really asking me? Like, I'm 14 and there's like 400 people here. And like, I'm probably one of the younger people here. Why are you asking me? And uh, I remember you just was so concerned. And he was a very, very beautiful person. Um, and see the Osama kind of Allah forgive him and elevate his status. He was just so committed to teaching people. He was so committed to community. Um, so he was one of the people I saw as an example. He was the first weekend program I ever went to. Uh, he had a, a program that weekend um, on Islamic knowledge and seeking scholarship. And he had maybe, a, it was like a four to five hour workshop. And I remember he was just drawing on this uh, whiteboard. And he was just so excited. And uh, I remember he had this really fancy bow tie he always used to wear. And he used to sip coffee like a really fancy way. It was just a very, very elegant person. Um, a very, very committed person to sacred knowledge and spirituality. And you can find a lot of his works online. I remember when he first was diagnosed with um, Lou, Gehrig, Lou Gehrig's disease, um, he had this podcast that he did. It was about an hour and a half on meditation of his own death. And it was a very, very powerful, very, very powerful uh, podcast that I, I listen to periodically. Um, so, yeah, you can start there. See the Osama Cannon's um, Reflections. You can search it on online, inshallah, and maybe Tim can put the link in the description here. That was a very, very beautiful podcast. And Brother Osama Kanan passed away this week on Tuesday uh, in Fez, Morocco. Allah bless him and elevate him. Inshallah. Inshallah. Just like our brother, I usually close with asking what the uh, our guests, uh, if... if I don't know if it necessarily is your favorite hadith or ayat al-Quran, but maybe something that's been transformational in your life. Absolutely. Uh, I read this hadith when I was in 11th grade. It said, The best of people is the most beneficial to other people. Um, and I think that's really the Islamic spirit of service, that a person is constantly committed to serving other people. And just like the famous JFK quote, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. But just... The Islamic spirit of service to other people um, and serving other people in every single capacity and thinking about how can I help other people and this is a very very important question that we need to think about and we, like we were talking about in the picnic one of the ways that we can help ourselves really is helping other people and there's a um, there's a line in Zain Bika. He, I've listened to his nasheed probably for 14, 15 years at this point. And Zain Bika has a line in one of his songs. Um, he says, getting to the top doesn't matter if somebody's got to fall. And uh, you always have to, this is what Havaz Yasser has told me probably hundreds of times at this point. He said, we are a people of elevation. We are a people who elevate other people. And we're always, oh, sorry. He says, we are a people of upliftment. And this is one of the Islamic qualities that a person, you meet him and you just feel better and you, uh, you're uplifted, you're inspired. 
And this is what I've seen in all of my teachers, that you just see them and you're inspired, right? Like you see Sheikh Qasim and you just want to smile. That this is just such a beautiful person. He himself just has the smile that radiates he back really at you. Does. Yeah. He really does. Allah bless him and increase him. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that's that's what I would want to close on. Khairun Nasi and Fa'umun Nas that the best of people are the most beneficial to other people. And this should be the eternal question we have in the back of our mind. How can I benefit the community? How can I benefit my family? How can I benefit other people? And we pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us people of benefit, people of service. Um, people are here as a ge- general service to the ummah and to the nation, to our country, to our cities and communities and families. I mean. Amin, amin. Jazakallah, brother. And we'll close there. Um, thank you for being with us today. And inshallah, we can maybe do some more of these conversations in the future. And inshallah, others find this as beneficial. Allah reward you, brother Tim, for all of your efforts. Uh, amin, amin. Jazakallah, khair. Assalamu alaikum. have been listening to Sober Awakenings. Special thanks to Sidi Omar Saeed for joining me for this episode and exploring the role of mentorship, scholars, coaches, teachers, and the importance these figures have to play in our development. Recovery is never meant to be something we engage in on our own. The fourth and fifth steps of the Sakina Method, our 12-step recovery program, explicitly discuss how through our muhasaba, our personal inventory that we create, how we must present this and deep dive it, analyze it with another person, someone who has been through many of these trials and tribulations, any of the pains that we are feeling, someone who has the experience, the knowledge, the wisdom to be able to point out faults that we may have overlooked and to help us navigate the internal and external struggles as we move towards our recovery and transformation. The Prophet in his model, his sunnah, established companionship as a core principle among the Ummah. After the Hijrah, the migration from Mecca to Medina, Brothers among the Medinans who were newly converted into Islam were connected with brothers from Mecca who had been in the religion and gone through the trials of it for at least a few years. The brothers with a weakness in one area were connected with brothers who had a strength in that area and vice versa. This model of brotherhood and companionship, this is a model that must be encouraged if we want to have successful recovery. O you who believe, 
fear Allah and be with those who are true. The Quran tells us that we must seek companionship. We can go through our lives, we can read books, study, listen to podcasts, find lectures on YouTube. We can enlighten our minds. But all of this is much faster and much easier when we are not alone. When we have someone that we can trust to guide us through it. You know, as Brother Omar was sitting with me uh, the other day, there was a phrase that he mentioned that stood out. You are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And it got me thinking back to who am I spending the majority of my time with? Outside of work and family, what is the effort I am putting into other relationships? If the people that I see outside of that core interpersonal circle are people who are not benefiting me, then what is that going to do to my state of being? I encourage you all, as I encourage myself, take a look at who we spend our days with and ponder whether these relationships are benefiting us or whether they are rather tearing us down. Allah also tells us in the Quran that he has succeeded, he purifies their soul. And he has failed who corrupts it. If you are struggling on the path of recovery, the Sakina method will aid in uplifting you and providing a foundation for moving forward. Please reach out if you would like to learn more about the Sakina method and know that Allah does not ever burden us with more than we can bear. Alhamdulillah. If you would like to contact Sidi Omar personally, you can reach him at u.said7 at gmail.com. Some of the resources he mentioned in today's episode include Sheikh Yahya Rodas at almukasid.org, Sheikh Qasim and Sheikh Omer at mihrab.com, Ustad Asama Kanan's discussion about mortality can be found on seekersguidance.org and via Talif Collective's SoundCloud account. All links provided in the show notes. Sober Awakenings is now on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash timisacoach to support this podcast with a donation or as a member. And be sure to check out the new Sakina Book Club. We are currently reading through Martin Ling's biography on the life of the Prophet Muhammad. 
may the peace and blessings of God be upon him and his family. This is a great resource and an excellent exemplar for us in how we can live as a perfect human. New episodes of Soap for Awakenings are continually being made available. Special thanks to Omar for opening up his home for us today. This episode was recorded in Omar's living room. Music was by Sound the Encounter. Our guest today was Sidi Omar Saeed. Sober Awakenings is a production of the Sakina Method of Recovery, and I am your coach, Tim Brinicky. May the peace and blessings of God be with you all. <laughs>